0: Welcome to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. This is Ashley Miller, and I am a pediatric resident here at the Medical College of Georgia in Augusta. Today, I am joined by Dr. Jamie Lawson, who is a general pediatrician and pediatric hospitalist at the Children's Hospital of Georgia. Welcome, Dr. Lawson.
1: I'm so happy to be here, Ashley.
0: Today, we are going to talk about childhood obesity. I was surprised at how much of a problem this has become and how often pediatricians have to educate patients and families on the health risk associated with obesity. Our episode today will include a discussion on the key history and physical exam findings associated with obesity, understanding the initial diagnostic approach, identifying associated comorbidities, how to initiate appropriate therapy for children who are overweight or obese, and finally, we will discuss strategies to counsel our patients and their families.
1: You know, obesity has been declared an epidemic in the United States by several major health groups, including the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the World Health Organization. Unfortunately, children and adolescents are part of that epidemic. Childhood obesity is a public health priority given its impact on acute and chronic diseases in addition to general physical, emotional, and mental health. Obesity, therefore, needs to be a part of our preventative care discussion with our patients and their family. Let's get our
0: discussion started with a clinical case. Jordan is an 11-year-old male who presents for his yearly checkup. Mom brings up that he has been coughing at night and she can hear him snoring even though his room is on the other side of the house. She wants to know what she should put on the dark rash around his neck. His vital signs are normal, including a normal blood pressure. Jordan's physical exam is remarkable for an obese teenager. He does have discoloration around his neck consistent with acanthosis nigricans. Otherwise, the rest of his exam is normal. You notice that one year ago, Jordan's body mass index, also known as the BMI, was right on the 85th percentile for age and gender. But today, his BMI has increased to the 90th percentile. When you show his growth chart to Jordan and his mom, mom laughs and tells you everyone in the family is tall and big boned,
1: so she is not concerned about his weight. Wow, there are so many great points in the case you've presented, Ashley. It's clear that this child is overweight and has several risk factors to developing other chronic conditions.
0: Dr. Lawson, it's often said that children should not be considered small adults. I know how to diagnose an adult as obese, but how is diagnosing childhood obesity different?
1: You bring up a good point, Ashley. If we say someone is obese when they are more than 20% above the ideal weight for a particular height and age, then who decides the definition for ideal weight? Sometimes that can be controversial. Uh, Are some kids just big boned? There are many factors to consider when we care for children who are overweight or at risk for becoming overweight. Some families may not have noticed the rapid weight gain. This is when showing the actual growth chart comes in handy. So you should routinely review the growth chart with the family at every single visit. It provides a visual of the child's growth and also helps compare the child to the norm. So another helpful standard measurement is the body mass index or the BMI. So Ashley, let's go over what the BMI is.
0: Sure. The body mass index is an objective way to determine if a child is overweight starting at age two years old. BMI is calculated by dividing a person's weight in kilograms by the square of height in meters. That's
1: right. And how do you interpret the BMI?
0: In general, a healthy BMI is between the 5th and 85th percentile for age and gender. If the BMI falls between the 85th and 95th percentile for age and gender, the child is considered to be overweight. Obesity is defined as a BMI at or above the 95th percentile.
1: Yeah, and it's also important to remember that BMI categories used for adults should not be applied to kids. Uh, So this is because a child's body composition varies as they age, and it also varies between boys and girls. So what else do we need to remember about BMI in kids, Ashley? BMI does not measure body fat directly.
0: That requires more sophisticated methods that may not be practical in everyday clinical practice. What BMI does help us do is identify children who are gaining weight too slowly or too quickly. When we plot the BMI trend on the growth curve, it can help the patient and family understand why we may be concerned about a child's
1: weight. That's right, Ashley. There are also growth charts that have been developed for a child that has a BMI greater than the 95th percentile.
0: Yes, the standard CDC BMI growth charts for children and adolescents do not go beyond the 97th percentile. These charts were based on data from children prior to the obesity epidemic. This makes it difficult for providers to visually represent extreme obesity in children over time. A study previously published proposed describing the BMI of a very obese child as the percentage of the 95th percentile. For example, if we had a 15-year-old male with a BMI of 35.5, he could be characterized as being 130% Of the 95th percentile. But then if he gains 40 pounds in one year, then that would change to 155 percent of the 95th percentile. Wow. Another paper published in Pediatrics by a group out of Children's Hospital of Colorado took this concept and developed a new growth chart. This new chart allowed doctors to visually appreciate dramatic increases in BMIs of severely obese children. It's remarkable how we need these specialized growth charts to represent BMIs that high in children.
1: Yes. According to the data from the CDC, one out of five children in the U.S. age 6 to 19 are overweight or obese. So what else should I be worried about for a patient with an elevated BMI? There are several things you should keep in mind. So let's talk about our patient Jordan. What problems did mom report?
0: Nighttime coughing, loud snoring, and a rash around his neck consistent with acanthosis nigricans. Right. Okay.
1: So let's start with the nighttime cough. Obesity is a major preventable risk factor for pediatric asthma. A retrospective study published in 2018 in Pediatrics looked at patients aged 2 to 17, and what they found was that obesity in children increases the risk of a new asthma diagnosis. This risk could be reduced by 26 to 38% just by having a BMI within the normal range.
0: That's amazing. I have learned how much having asthma can impact a child. It can lead to avoidance of sports and absences from school. It can also be an economic challenge for the family. So what about Jordan's snoring?
1: Well, whenever a child is overweight with a history of loud snoring, you should consider obstructive sleep apnea. The extra fatty tissue can actually put pressure on the airway and cause sleep disturbances and other problems. So ask the parents about the child's bedtime routine and how many hours the child sleeps each night. However, you know, it's not just the number of hours, but the quality of the sleep. Symptoms like loud snoring, pauses in breathing, or a child that is tired during the day may be signs that the quality of sleep is poor, even if they're sleeping enough hours.
0: Yes, these children can also have difficulty with poor attention, poor academic performance, and behavior during the day, which is probably worse if they aren't getting enough sleep. These patients
1: would benefit from a referral for a sleep study to diagnose and treat sleep apnea.
0: Okay, but what about our patient Jordan? How do I discuss with mom that there are serious consequences to being obese when mom thinks it's okay just to be big-boned?
1: Yeah, so that's that's the challenge, right? So chances are you're not the first person, nor will you be the last person. We'll talk to this mom about her son's weight. They've probably heard the things you will say due to the many public health initiatives, social media, and other sources of information. Uh, But there's also a lot of barriers to change. So there may be misconceptions about weight loss. The parents may be struggling with the weight themselves. They might have limited resources available. Well then,
0: how do I express my concerns about Jordan's weight and the associated risks without offending the family?
1: Weight can be a very sensitive subject, you know, but as a physician, we have the responsibility to address obesity just like any other disease. So focus on health over weight. Help the family understand the child's overall picture of health and not just the weight. Obesity during childhood increases the risk of being obese in adulthood. You know, about 40% of obese children become obese adults.
0: That's concerning, especially since pediatricians are seeing an increase in diseases that used to be only associated with adult onset. Youth with elevated BMIs are now being diagnosed with hypertension, atherosclerosis, insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, and hyperlipidemia, among others.
1: Prevention of these comorbid conditions is so super important. Part of your evaluation should be to identify these potential comorbid conditions. So this includes a complete review of systems. Ashley, what would you include in a focused review of systems of a patient that is overweight or obese?
0: Well, obesity is related to several endocrine disorders. So I would definitely ask about symptoms like nervousness, fatigue, polyuria, polydipsia, headaches, skin pigmentation hirsutism, irregular menses, and acne.
1: Yes, these symptoms may not be symptoms you would typically ask about in a pediatric patient, but being obese increases the risk of endocrine-related disorders that should be addressed promptly to prevent further morbidity. So this includes diabetes, thyroid disease, and polycystic ovarian syndrome. So Ashley, what are some of the other symptoms that are important to ask about?
0: Excess weight can certainly be a burden on the child's joints, which may affect how well they can engage in physical activity. So we need to consider musculoskeletal complaints.
1: That's correct. A recent study reported that overweight children had more musculoskeletal discomfort and fractures with conditions like skiffy or slipped capital femoral epiphysis or Blount disease. So ask about a history of hip and knee pain.
0: Indigestion or abdominal pain would be another symptom I would ask about. That could suggest gastroesophageal reflux or constipation. A headache history should also be included in the review of systems. There is research that suggests those who are obese are at increased risk of developing headaches, particularly migraine headaches. Great job. And uh, what might we see on the physical exam? Well, our patient Jordan presented with acanthosis nigricans, which
1: indicates an increased risk of diabetes. Mm-hmm. That's correct as well. Acanthosis nigricans simply refers to a dark, velvety discoloration and body folds increases. The presence suggests insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. So what type of workup should I do for a child that is overweight or obese? Should I get lab? Obtaining labs depends on the age, BMI, and risk factors. Labs can help identify comorbid conditions. Children with a BMI in the 85th to 94th percentile need to have a lipid screening. So consider ordering a fasting glucose level, liver enzyme level, uh, you know, especially if the child has risk factors. We usually check these levels every two years. What abnormal lab results
0: would warrant further investigation?
1: So if you have elevated levels of AST and ALT, that might indicate the possibility of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and a liver ultrasound might be of benefit for further evaluation. If a patient has an abnormal fasting glucose level, this could be indicative of insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. A thyroid-stimulating hormone, or TSH, and a free T4 could help uh, identify hypothyroidism, which is an endocrine abnormality associated with pediatric obesity. Some recent studies have suggested that obesity can be a risk factor for vitamin D deficiency. The risk increases for those with type 2 diabetes. So consider ordering a vitamin D serum level. This is really easily treated.
0: So let's take a moment and review what we have discussed so far for the listeners. We have reviewed that the evaluation of an overweight or obese child should begin with looking at the growth chart, specifically the weight, height, and BMI trend over time. A complete history, review of systems, and routine labs can also evaluate for other potential conditions associated with obesity. Now that we have diagnosed Jordan as overweight and identified signs of associated conditions, what's next?
1: So diagnosis is the first step, but now you have to think about how to intervene. You need to understand what treatment options are available and select the one that will have the best chance for success for your patient. So if we go back to our patient Jordan, we need a little more information to come up with a treatment plan. Ashley, can you tell me about Jordan's nutritional and activity habits? Well,
0: Jordan admits that he does not participate in much physical activity except for the one hour at school each week. He prefers to play video games with friends online. He spends most of the day snacking on chips, soda, and frozen microwavable meals. His parents try to prepare a home-cooked meal on most nights, and Jordan admits to getting a second helping.
1: Wow. So yeah, you bring up a lot of good points, Ashley. Uh, Exploration of family eating and activity patterns should begin with a review of meals and snacks and types of physical activity and sedentary activities. So first, simply ask the child and parents, what is a typical breakfast, lunch, dinner? What types of snacks are in the home? What's the child drinking? Are they consuming more fruit juice and soda than water? Are meals cooked at home or do they come from the drive-thru or restaurants? Are meals eaten at the table? Is the TV on when they're eating meals? So, you know, Ashley, why do you think these questions are so important?
0: I think the answers will help me understand the nutritional and lifestyle patterns of the family. Skipping breakfast may make a child more likely to snack or overeat at the next meal. A child could get lots of extra calories by drinking sugary drinks, eating prepackaged processed food, or eating out. The body may not be able to signal if it's had enough if meals are taken in front of the TV. Anytime we overeat or get more calories than we need, it can lead to poor digestion and weight gain.
1: All right, good job, Ashley. Uh, Just make sure you fully understand what the family reports. So, for instance, when they say their child eats a lot of fruit, they might mean canned fruit cocktail drenched in high fructose corn sugar, right?
0: Yes. Adolescents will often say they're hungry all the time. If my patient Jordan, who is 11 years old and eats a second helping, Is this overeating or just the elevated metabolism of a
1: growing boy? Uh, You know, so actually it's important to balance intake with output. There's a big difference between, uh, you know, say an 11-year-old who's having a bit of a growth spur and uh, a child who is just simply chronically overeating. And my advice that I give a lot of patients is if a child wants seconds, that's fine, but the seconds need to be a healthy choice like vegetables. So they're welcome to go back up and they can have a little bit more of a lean meat, but mainly they should be filling their plate with vegetables. Something else important to talk about is that we need to take a good history of what types of physical activity the child engages in. Don't just ask, do you exercise? The word exercise might mean different things to every patient. So you can start by asking, what do they enjoy doing outside? Riding a bike, running, walking, swimming, basketball? Do they help with chores at home? Ask about the patient's screen time. This is going to include everything from a computer, laptop, phone, and tablet. Yes. I
0: feel like screen time is a very big hot topic right now. How do you determine the number of hours a kid should have when most kids these days have at least partial virtual learning?
1: That's a good point. Uh, So you need to ask how much non-school related time is being spent. All of this time in front of a screen is time away from engaging in meaningful physical activity, and a lot of times it's accompanied by a sugary drink and mindless snacking.
0: So Dr. Lawson, what about the psychosocial aspect of obesity?
1: So I think it's important to ask about the general lifestyle of the family. Do the adults in the home work full-time? Parents may not have the time, the knowledge, or the energy to make full home-cooked meals for the family, so consider access to food as well. Do the children in the home eat most of their meals at daycare or school? Or, uh, If so, this could unearth concerns of financial hardships and limited access to food. Where do they shop? If a grocery store isn't close to the home, perhaps they're having difficulty obtaining fresh fruits, vegetables, and lean meats. Financial hardships, family illness, divorce, or any other disruption in normal daily life can affect appropriate nutrition. So answers to these questions may also provide subtle clues on motivation and other difficulties that may be increasing the risk for the childhood obesity in that family.
0: What about genetics? I've encountered parents and patients who say that they have done everything to lose weight. Are there genetic reasons the child could be overweight or obese?
1: Although they are rare, there are genetic causes for obesity. Children with genetic disorders usually present earlier in life, before age five. They will also tend to have other associated signs and symptoms, such as dysmorphic features, cognitive delay, short stature, or vision or hearing impairment. So if a child looks dysmorphic or has any developmental delay, you should consider genetic or chromosomal conditions. So think of things like Prader-Willi, Fragile X, congenital liptin deficiency, Albright's hereditary osteodystrophy, and Cohen syndrome. The growth chart may show a child failing to stay in the normal range. Growth hormone deficiency, hypothyroidism, and Cushing syndrome are endocrine disorders that are also associated with obesity. Um, These disorders would have a low linear growth with disproportionate weight increase.
0: Dr. Lawson, with all of these physical and physiologic changes due to obesity, there must be an increased risk of social and emotional consequences.
1: Have you seen this with your patients? Yes, unfortunately, children with obesity are more likely to have low self-esteem, increased rates of anxiety and depression, and body image disturbances. Also, children who are overweight and obese may experience increased levels of teasing and bullying. This puts them at risk for social isolation, problems at school, and increased chance of depression and even suicide.
0: As we mentioned earlier, discussing a patient's risk for being overweight or obese can be a very sensitive topic. How would you start the conversation with patients and their families?
1: So the AAP recommends that pediatricians use sensitive, appropriate, non-stigmatizing language.
0: It's my own belief that words can definitely heal or harm. What are some examples of non-stigmatizing language pediatricians can use to better facilitate a conversation about a patient's BMI?
1: Obesity is a medical diagnosis with major health complications, so it's very important for patients and families to understand the severity of this disease. But I believe this can be done in a way that is compassionate and non-judgmental, and you're going to have better results when you speak to patients that way. I would encourage providers to avoid using words such as morbidly obese, extremely obese, or fat. These words often lead to feelings of shame, sadness, and embarrassment. Instead, research shows some neutral words like weight and BMI are preferred by adolescents with this problem. Engage in an open dialogue with the parent and the child. Start by asking them how would they like to address the problem and letting them direct the treatment plan. This will get them more engaged and they will be more likely to follow through with the plan.
0: Back to our patient, Jordan's mom seems to think his weight is okay because everyone in the family has the same body habitus.
1: Good observation, Ashley. If you walk into the exam room and you see that the whole family is overweight, addressing psychosocial and cultural factors may be important. You know, some children live in neighborhoods where it isn't safe to go outside or play or exercise, and this can lead to sedentary lifestyles. So again, I think you just really need to have an open dialogue to understand any resistance to treatment.
0: I want to also bring up the fact that maintaining a healthy lifestyle has become more difficult for many people during the COVID-19 pandemic. Lots of children have lost access to meals when schools close for in-person learning. It's also been noted that learning from home has led to a decrease in physical activity due to the lack of recess and physical education time. The AAP put out a statement that said children and adolescents with obesity are at a higher risk of contracting COVID-19 and are at an increased risk of worsening obesity during the pandemic. Do you have any recommendations for addressing these issues at upcoming well-child visits?
1: Uh, The AAP released guidelines which encourage clinicians to screen for what we now call the social determinants of health. So we routinely screen for things like food insecurity, access to fresh food, stable place to live, financial concerns, and other social stressors. Due to the pandemic, we also need to pay attention to excess weight gain, sleep habits, screen time, and changes in physical activity level.
0: Do you have any tips on counseling families about appropriate
1: nutritional intake? I really like the 5 two, one Almost None formula for a healthy lifestyle.
0: 5 two, one Almost None? Mm-hmm. What does that stand for?
1: Five is to remember to have five or more servings of fruits and vegetables a day. Two is for two hours or less of recreational screen time. And one is for one hour of physical activity per day. And Almost None is meant to discourage sugary drinks, sports drinks, and even the ones that are 100% fruit juice. In theory, we would like almost all liquid intake to be water. These are great
0: tips, and I feel like it's simple enough for parents and patients to remember. Well, Dr. Lawson, it's time to wrap up our episode today. Let's review what we've discussed. Pediatric obesity is an epidemic in the United States. One out of five children in the U.S. age 6 to 19 are considered overweight or
1: obese. That's right. Obesity is a complex multifactorial condition affected by genetic and non-genetic factors, socioeconomic factors, and the environment that a patient grows up in.
0: The primary care provider can utilize the BMI to monitor their patients to begin intervention as soon as possible. We are seeing an increase in diseases that used to be adult onset. The primary care provider should continue to monitor for these comorbid conditions as part of management.
1: Prevention is one of the most important steps we can take to help kids who struggle with their weight. By using sensitive, appropriate language when talking with patients and their parents, we can engage patients and families to strive for healthier lifestyles and to help end this epidemic. The 521 almost none mnemonic is easy to remember and can be used with every patient in their family.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Lawson. And for those listening, please join us for future episodes where we will dive into further topics related to pediatric obesity.
1: Thanks for having me. This was fun.
0: An additional thanks to Dr. Rebecca Yang and Dr. April Hartman, who peer-reviewed today's discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignette cases presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. We look forward to speaking to you on our next episode of the MCG
1: Pediatric Podcast. And don't forget, 521, almost done. Wow. wow.